Despite the conflict and chaos in our world, there are people who are working for peace. Peace isn't wimpy. Peace is hot. Peace is hard work. There are a lot of cool, wonderful, hardworking people who work for a better world. This hour, hear stories from Nobel Peace Prize winners and citizens making a difference in their communities. None of our children were born violent. But if you accept that violence is a learned behavior, nonviolence can also be a learned behavior. Uh, one of the key messages we teach is that from conflict, love and unity are possible. But my question isn't, do I agree with your theology? My question is, can we live in some sort of mutual trust and loyalty together so that we can actually serve others together? The work is a way to identify and question the thoughts that cause all the suffering in the world. Anyone can do it if they're open to it. Stay tuned for Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. In the world of peacemaking, trained mediators are often in the center trying to broker an agreement or compromise between parties at odds with each other. Parties at odds with each other. Hmm. Some might call that one definition of government. Some years ago, professional mediator Dan Dana began to wonder if government would work better if more trained mediators were elected. So he initiated a project called Elect Mediators to Public Office. He talked with Peace Talks Radio's Suzanne Kreider. The tagline for your project is better government through non-adversarial resolution of differences. How would mediators make better government? Well, mediators are trained in the, in the cooperative arts and um, attorneys are trained in the adversarial arts. In elective politics, at least, uh, there seems to be a preponderance of uh, legally trained people. Many mediators are, of course, attorneys, but they've had some additional exposure to uh, non-adversarial problem-solving. So it just seemed to me that uh, mediators at at any level of uh, public service, whether it's uh, from dog catcher to president, uh, would do a better job of uh, resolving the differences that inherently confront their, uh, their work. Talk about the cooperative arts. What does that mean? Mediators are trained to seek a consensus and help parties with divergent interests reach some common ground. So that seems to me to be the way that public servants should approach their jobs. But is it possible that seeking consensus would slow down the political process even more? Well, it could take more time. I mean, it is true that uh, consensus seeking is a slower process than just uh, sort of dictating a solution. So consensus-seeking, consensus-finding does uh, take a bit more time, but frankly, I'm not sure that uh, it would be any more time-consuming than the uh, endless gridlock that we find in in many uh, government functions. When you use the word adversarial, what are the kinds of behaviors you're most concerned about? Well, just the uh, the attitude that um, that one is is there to impose one's own political view or values upon uh, those who might be in a numerical minority but who nevertheless have uh, useful ideas and useful values. So the the effort to um, impose one side upon the other uh, in a power play is uh, seems to me to result in uh, less desirable outcomes. I'm curious, though, if there's something about mediators. They're too nice or... Maybe because they're not adversarial, they don't get elected. Because there's over a dozen mediators on your website who've run for office, but only a few of them have won. Can mediators really get elected? Well, that's 
you know, that's been my concern too. Maybe mediators are just too nice. <laughs> you get a <laughs> you get a group of mediators together, and we're just nice people. <laughs> we're likable, and we're agreeable, and, <laughs> and we're not hard fighters for the most part. So I I think there's some truth to that. It's a sad truth if that's the case that that mediators are not uh, sort of uh, characterologically disposed toward uh, you know being political successes. How do you see elected officials using mediation skills? I think that um, having people uh, communicate with each other about uh, overlapping interests, shared interests, acknowledging those, and then have uh, have an exploratory conversation about how to reach some reasonable compromise that suits, uh, to some degree, the needs of both constituencies. Dan, you said mediators are not hard fighters. And that always seems like a standard stump speech line for politicians. I will fight hard for you. What would be a compelling line for a mediator to use in a stump speech? Well, that's a good point. We've kind of developed a, a political culture in a society in which uh, it's expected that, that uh, candidates fight um, and and that the opponent in that fight is uh, the the other party or other candidates, depending on whether or not you're in an election phase or in an in a, in office phase. So uh, I think that uh, perhaps someone more articulate than I would be able to make a case to the voting public that, you know, my job is not simply to fight for you at the expense of others, but to uh, make an effort, and I guess you could call it fight, but I'd rather not use the word, uh, make an effort to uh, seek reasonable compromise so that we can all be in the, uh, you know, on the same side of the problem when we're, when we're done. I will seek responsible compromise. An excellent way to put it. I think you should run for office. (laughs) (laughs) Suzanne Kreider with Dan Dana, founder of the Mediation Training Institute International and a project called Elect Mediators to Public Office. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls. In our public radio series, we seek out the people and the stories that allow us to believe peace is possible within our own hearts, in our lives with family, neighbors, co-workers, schoolmates, and on the larger world stage between nations. One recent show told the story of Azim Kamisa, whose son Tarek was a San Diego State University student delivering pizzas one day in 1995 when a small street gang approached his car. The 18-year-old gang leader challenged a 14-year-old gang member named Tony Hicks to prove himself by firing into Tarek's car with a pistol. Hicks did, the gang fled, Tariq Kamisa died on the scene. Instead of seeking revenge, Azim Kamisa found peace by forming a nonprofit organization offering workshops on nonviolence for schools. He also reached out to the shooter's family to join the organization. Our Carol Boss talked with Azim Kamisa. I started the foundation nine months after Tariq died. And soon after I started the foundation, I reached out in forgiveness to his grandfather and guardian. And as you are aware, we worked together. So I chose to forgive instead of uh, revenge. And when I met the grandfather, what I told him is what I see here is uh, victims at both ends of the gun. I told him, I see that he and I both lost a son. My son was a victim of his grandson, and the grandson was a victim of 
society, of American society. And I quite frankly felt as an American, I'm a naturalized American, but I am an American. I felt that I must take my share of the responsibility for the bullet that took my son's life, and quite frankly, so should every caring American. And uh, we essentially have been together now for 12 years. The foundation just uh, finished its 12th anniversary. And it just amazes me how well the foundation has done. Yeah, let's talk about some of the programs on the website for the TKF Foundation, the Tariq Kamisa Foundation. It reads Empowering Kids, Saving Lives, Teaching Peace. And there are several school-based violence prevention education programs. Can you um, talk to us about one of them, which is Violence Impact Forum? I know it's for students, what, from the fourth to ninth grade? Yes. uh, The Violence Impact Forum uh, is a live assembly. uh, We have a video that uh, uh, we have uh, developed where the murder scene has been reenacted. Uh, The kids first look at the video, and then uh, uh, Plez and I are introduced, and uh, and we are on stage live, and we are introduced, this man's grandson killed this man's son, and here they are as brothers. And then I give my testimony, uh, Plez gives his testimony. We then have uh, panel members, a male and a female, uh, both ex-gang members, and they all have powerful stories. And then we engage the kids into a Q&A. It's a very intensive, immersive, hard-hitting, reality-based encounter. And it just amazes me that there is no fidgeting. It's pin-drop silence. And, uh, and very often I'll ask the audience how many of you have lost family members as a result of violence. And it just breaks my heart that three quarters of the hands go up. And uh, we, we, have, uh, we have six key messages that we try and impart in these uh, live, live assemblies. Yes, and one of them is you can make good and nonviolent choices. So in in this era of um, media and video games with images that are that are filled with guns and violence that are so pervasive in this culture and are so attractive to youth, how is making good choices and nonviolent choices presented in a way that draws them in, that is appealing to young students and something that they want to actually do? That's a very good question. Uh, You're right. The violence is extremely pervasive. We are by far the most violent first world nation in the world. By the time our kids get to grade A, they've seen 100,000 images of violence. But I started with a very simple premise that violence is a learned behavior. Nobody was born violent. None of our children were born violent. But if you accept that violence is a learned behavior, nonviolence can also be a learned behavior. But who teaches it? At TKF, we do teach it. And let me answer your question by an example. Uh, we have a lesson on empathy. Uh, and empathy is a big word in some of these uh, uh, middle schools. So we usually have a theme. And the theme on empathy is, I don't know you till I walk a mile in your shoes, and you don't know me till you walk a mile in my shoes. And this was a seventh grader. His name was Alex, 
in seventh grade and had all the signs, the sway, the encounter, the colors. You could see a wannabe gang member written all over this kid. And, uh, and somehow this lesson on empathy got to him. And used, then the homework is that they have to practice empathy for the whole week. And the week after, before they get their lesson on compassion, they are asked to share uh, their homework on empathy. And when the teacher asks who wants to share their lesson on empathy, it was Alex. Now, remember, this is a kid that's the most disruptive kid in the class. And what he shared that day was very powerful. And what he said is, I was walking in my hood last weekend, and this kid gave me a dirty, angry look. The rules of the hood are, if a kid gives you a dirty, angry look, you go beat him up. But because you taught me that you don't know me till you walk a mile in my shoes, and I don't know you till I walk a mile in your shoes, I walked up to this kid and said, why are you giving me a dirty look? So the kid said to me, I'm not giving you a dirty look. I'm angry because my brother was shot and killed last night. So what did you do, Alex? I held his hand. Hmm. We cried together. I gave him a hug. I, I told him, I know how you feel because I lost my uncle six months ago. One lesson. And you think that this kid walks the hood every weekend. Tell me you can't teach nonviolence. You see the power of this, what, what could have been... Mm-hmm. A, a fight became a compassionate action, you know? Uh, one of the key messages we teach is that from conflict, love and unity are possible. I talk about this, and you know, I talk about the fact that uh, I would never have met Ples had his grandson not taken the life of my son. Mm-hmm. Ples is African-American. My roots are Eastern. You know, Azim is a Persian, East Indian name. I'm a Muslim. Ples grew up as a Christian, and he's as close to me as my own brother. We hang out. In fact, I'm having dinner with him tonight. So uh, he's met my entire family. I've met his entire family. We have this love for each other. I cannot even put it in words. I was yes. telling him he helps me carry my load. I help him carry his load. You know, we are water bearers for each other. Now, I always tell people, you know, I want you to notice something here. This is not Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. meeting Gandhi. This is an investment banker meeting a Green Beret. Ples was a Green Beret. The point I'm trying to make is if he and I can do it, we can all do it. For more of our conversation with Azim Kamisa and a link to the Tarek Kamisa Foundation, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. Our Peace Talks radio shows occasionally look back to the often underappreciated efforts of peacemakers through time. In our history books, details of man's wars take up far more space than the stories of peace agreements brokered to prevent war. Actually, good luck finding those stories in the history books at all. One of our programs spotlighted the Nobel Peace Prize winning diplomatic efforts of Ralph Johnson Bunch. These successful armistice negotiations have demonstrated conclusively the ability of the United Nations to mediate a serious conflict and to avert a dangerous threat to the peace. That's United Nations diplomat Ralph Bunch at the docks in New York, returning to the United States on boat after securing the first major Arab-Israeli armistice in 1949. 
a tireless proponent of human and civil rights, Bunch was instrumental in cooling down hot spots through negotiation and setting the world stage for the transformation from colonial rule to independence for nations in Africa and Asia. One historian said he was not only a role model for African Americans, but was also a role model for anyone and everyone when it comes to human relations. Well, I think that's absolutely true. Sir Brian Urquhart is a former Undersecretary of the United Nations, who worked with Ralph Bunch for 20 years until Bunch's death at the age of 67 in 1971. Uh, Ralph himself, though he was extremely proud of, of his African-American background, uh, very much disliked the idea that he was the first American Negro to do this or that, or that he was in some way different from everybody else. He, he saw the whole human race as as uh, not as brothers, but as people who deserve to be helped and whose problems uh, he, he wished to devote his life to. And that's what he did uh, pretty consistently, right from his relatively early days. Ralph Bunch, an outstanding athlete and scholar in school uh, at UCLA, summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, and he delivers the class valedictory address at graduation. Even just in his 20s, uh, the words in the speech that he called the fourth dimension of personality seem to hold a lot of um, what will drive him throughout his entire life. Let me just read a little bit of this. It says, man learns and knows, but he does not do as well as he knows. This is his weakness. The future peace and harmony of the world are contingent upon the ability, yours and mine, to effect a remedy. This was really kind of a signpost for the rest of his days, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, Ralph, from, a, from an extraordinarily early time, he realized the extraordinary gap between knowledge and actual performance, particularly in the political and diplomatic world. And he made it a, a rule that there was no human problem which, which was not susceptible to some kind of improvement, no matter how long it took, which is one of the reasons why he was such a good negotiator. You talk about the importance of drafting in peace negotiations, something you said Bunch was especially uh, good at throughout his career. Can you elaborate on this and suggest what, uh, what Bunch could do so well that is still crucial for negotiations of all kinds today? Or it will be. Well, my, my sort of vision of Ralph, who is I think the person I spent more hours with in my entire life than anybody else uh, is of him hunched over a, a legal-sized pad with a whole supply of pencils and writing in longhand a whole number of things, mostly formulas to try to get around problems that had come up during the day. Ralph's great genius was to be able to listen all day to two or three or whatever it was sized to a conflict and then to, in the night to write up a form of words which they could all accept, which would mean you could move forward. Of course, the great classic example of this was the armistice agreements between Israel and her five Arab neighbors, which he drafted and got, and got agreed on in uh, 1949. He could uh, intuit in his own mind the problems and the fears and the difficulties of the people he was dealing with, not least the kind of reception they were, they were going to get when they went back home if they had given away too much. And he could get all that working with the objections they had made to some previous proposal. 
and he could reformulate that proposal in a way that would give everybody just enough leeway to get through. It's something that very few people can do. And it, to do it, you have to have, first of all, an enormously uh, acute uh, analytical mind, and secondly, a very great capacity for understanding the difficulties of other people. What you're talking about is a capacity for empathy as well. Absolutely. I mean, somebody once said that uh, one of the generals who Ralph employed in somewhere, I think, in the Middle East, once said that Ralph had the kindest eyes that he'd ever seen. And I think it was true. He He was a person who really had an unusual appreciation and liking for his fellow human beings. And curiously enough, it's not necessarily a very common uh, common quality. Uh, he, he really cared about the whole idea of helping people in trouble, and those were the people he was interested in. He was surprisingly little interested in very important people, celebrities, that kind of thing. He really didn't mind about them at all. But he was deeply interested in the lives of ordinary people and how you could improve them. Did he also have a skill for being present and, I would presume, an extraordinary skill at uh, listening? He was an incredibly good listener. In fact, I think it was uh, Moshe Dayan, who was at that time an up-and-coming general in the Israeli army, who once described during the armistice agreements, he said that uh, Bunch would sit there for hours uh, and just looking at the person who was speaking, absolutely unmoving, and you could somehow see the this this knowledge being received into some central area of his brain and being sort of filed accurately so that he could pull it out later on. And he was a very, very good listener. Sir Brian Urquhart wrote Ralph Bunch, An American Life. Ahead, we'll hear words from two living Nobel Peace laureates, Mohammed Yunus and Jody Williams. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks Radio special. More after this break. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special, a compendium of highlights from a radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can hear the entire programs from which these excerpts come by visiting our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, 
or you can also order CDs, sign up for a newsletter or a podcast, and make a financial contribution to keep this kind of programming on the air and online, all at peacetalksradio.com. If you're upset with the lack of peace in the world today, don't come complaining to 1997 Nobel Peace Laureate Jody Williams, who won the prize for her work banning landmines. Unless, of course, you are ready to volunteer some time and make a difference yourself. Carol Boss talked with Jody Williams. I think we have to, you know, like, seize on what peace really is. Peace isn't wimpy. Peace is hot. Peace is sexy. Peace is hard work. There are a lot of cool, wonderful, hardworking people who work for a better world. So I read in an interview, I think somewhere online, about um, where you were talking about accepting responsibility of rethinking how we address the world's problems. And if we go to the formation, if we start talking about the formation of the international campaign to ban Mm -hmm. landmines, from humble roots, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. a whole movement was born. Um, Where did that rethinking emerge from? I mean, in a sense, we, you know, we're held up as some sort of uh, quintessential model of government, civil society, partnership, bringing about change demonstrating that transnational civil society, you know, people across borders can come together, work collectively with governments to address the problems that face us all. And yes, we have been tremendously successful and we're a good model. But I was given a book relatively recently and it's called Bury the Chains. Have you ever read it? No. Adam Hochschild. He was actually one of the founders of Mother Jones. Yes. He also wrote King Leopold's Ghost, which I haven't read yet, but I have to. And Barry the Chains talks about one of the first recorded civil society movements, and it was to end the slave trade in the UK. And in the introduction, they talk about, you know, that that campaign, back before the US Civil War, used many of the same techniques that we use today. It just wasn't, you know, with the technology we have today. And to me, that was phenomenally inspiring, actually, to think about myself and the campaign to ban landmines and now the campaign to ban cluster bombs and we need a campaign to ban nukes. We're part of a chain. What would be an example of a a technique that is similar? Oh, they used, you know, brochures, pamphlets, just like we do today. The thing is, when we actually do a handout, we can also put it online so it's globally accessible. But they did the same kind of thing, went and talked to their, you know, the, what are, what are the parliament, parliamentarians. They found a parliament, you know, a parliamentarian who was their champion in the parliament. Same kinds of things that we did in the landmine campaign on the national levels, you know, to build the building blocks to make the campaign itself succeed. You think what really distinguishes the landmine campaign from others is that we got government so motivated that they were willing to reject traditional negotiating methods, which is, in my view, dictatorship by consensus. Because if, you know, 100 governments are in a room and 99 of them agree they're going to ban nuclear weapons, and one says no, then the whole thing falls apart, because you have to have consensus. In negotiating the landmine treaty, after it failed within the UN, after two and a half years of trying, they stepped outside and they said, okay, we're not doing consensus. We're not negotiating in the UN. We're going to have standalone meetings in different parts of the world, and in that process, we're going to negotiate the treaty. 
And that's what we did. So what would you say was a, a, a very important thing that you learned in the building of the campaign? Oh, in all honesty, a couple of things. Um, that really, in a, in a global campaign like that, it is the work of the many that really allow the dedicated vision of a few to get the job done. The reality of it is, is that even in peace movements and NGOs, which are supposed to be more righteous than governments or whatever, there are a lot of blowhards who want to yap and don't really want to do the work. They want to tell you what should be done, but then they don't want to do anything. And in our campaign, you know, tons of people were really involved, but there were a handful of us who worked every single day to make sure that all of that was translated into a coherent global strategy that resulted in the Mind Band Treaty. Another thing that I believe in is communication, 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 and more communication. If you don't talk amongst all of the elements of what you know, your NGO or your campaign or whatever, you're making you're diminishing the effectiveness of each and every one of them. Another thing is follow up. If you tell a government you're going to do X, if they do Y, make damn sure you do X. Because they come, they may not like you, but they trust you if they know that you will always do what you say you're going to do. Whether it's praise them if they join the ban or condemn them or whatever, they know what the consequences are. And that builds trust Mm -hmm. and respect, even if they don't like you. I think those two things are particularly important. In in terms of um, advice or um, words of wisdom for folks who are listening to this, and in, in terms of um, and sure. yes, engaging in, in look change. one of the things that I used that I do that drove the people my you know colleagues in landmine campaign crazy when I would speak when people would say what can we do, my answer would not be join the campaign, my answer would be I don't care what you do, I care that you care about something enough to do something about it, whether it's the environment, whether it's stopping nukes, whether it's cluster bombs, whether it's gender equality. I don't care what it is. But if you really care, volunteer some time. You know, you don't have to be a full-time activist to make a difference. I think that part of what happens in today's world is we're purposefully overwhelmed with all the, you know, gross things out there in the hope of turning us into Stepford citizens automatons who think that we cannot make a difference in the world. So why bother? I totally disagree with that. Imagine if everybody of goodwill, in just in this country, volunteered one hour a month at some organization working on something they care about, whether it's community, it doesn't have to be international, all of it adds up to a different world. It doesn't take great drama to bring about change. All it means is getting up off your butt finding an organization that's working on something you care about, and volunteer. 1997 Nobel Peace Laureate Jody Williams with Carol Boss. In 2006, the world's most high-profile peace honor went to a man who made it his mission to lift the world's poorest people out of poverty with modest loans made without collateral. Mohammed Yunus was a university professor whose microcredit initiatives led to the formation of the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. For years, it has been reducing poverty and, as a result, promoting peace. Here are some of the Nobel Prize acceptance remarks of Mohammed Yunus. 
Peace is threatened by unjust economic, social, and political order, absence of democracy, environmental degradation, and absence of human rights. Poverty is the absence of all human rights. The frustrations, hostility, and anger generated by abject poverty cannot sustain peace in any society. For building stable peace, we must find ways to provide opportunities for people to live decent lives. The creation of opportunities for the majority of the people, the poor, is at the heart of the work that we have dedicated ourselves during the past 30 years. Today, Gamin Bank gives loans to nearly 7 million poor people. 97% of them are women in 73,000 villages of Bangladesh. Gamin Bank gives collateral-free income-generating loans, housing loans, student loans, and micro-enterprise loans to the poor families and offer them a host of attractive savings, pension funds, and insurance products for its members. On a Peace Talks radio episode, we talked more about microcredit with Coralie Bryant, a professor and author of the book Reducing Poverty, Building Peace. And this is Heidi Top Brooks, a global group leader with an anti-poverty grassroots organization called Results. There's something I'd really love to say about Muhammad Yunus and uh, Grameen Bank and what he discovered after running the Grameen Bank for about 10 years. Someone asked him, what's the first thing that people do when they start earning money after they take out a loan? And he said, the first thing people do is they buy their children back. And this shocks me when I hear it, except that it's in the news again. Children are still being sold into slavery by families who are too poor to feed them. And when you loan money to women, as Grameen Bank does, what they do is feed their children. And they send their children to school and they clothe their children. So um, this, this is a tremendous way of bringing uh, a, a certain kind of peace into the lives of the poorest of the poor. And it is desperately needed even today. Coralie, did you have a comment? I think that the point, the problem that he's pointing to is one that happens in a lot of places. In a way, he fundamentally, Eunice did a a fabulous job, and the Grameen Bank is a fabulous job. It illustrates part of the point I made, because one of the exciting and interesting things happening is that Grameen Bank is now working in this country. And that's part of this way of thinking about can we learn from what was effective in other places and apply it here to our own problems? We have had quite serious problems with banks that refuse to lend to, to poor people in our own neighborhood, saying the same thing. They're not creditworthy. What Eunice discovered was the ways in which they can be organized into small groups and face-to-face groups uh, can, can help protect and be a surety for one another in terms of paying back the loans. And the repayment rates that Grameen has had is fabulous. This is a story about one of the early borrowers uh, from Bangladesh. And uh, she was being interviewed by the executive director of my organization, which is Results, Lynn Walker-McMillan. 
And uh, the woman who was being interviewed through an interpreter uh, gently tapped on the arm of the interpreter and said, tell her that my son is starting university this year. So this is a woman who had taken out her first loan as a widowed, pregnant mother and bought a pair of geese. She bought geese. She had no home. She was living uh, in ditches on the side of the road. And from that, she was able to feed her children. This, this young man who was starting university is the child with whom she was pregnant at the time of her first loan. And by all rights, the child probably shouldn't even have survived. And yet now, in one generation, this young man is going to the university. So completely revolutionizing life for this family. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls. Ahead, tips for finding inner peace from Byron Katie. Also a program that brings young people of divergent faiths together. And 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. All after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special. Highlights from our conversations with peacemakers on the world stage, in our local communities, and with those who are trying to help us find our own inner peace. Author Byron Katie says we have to find inner peace first before we can be useful to others. And her books invite people to question the thoughts that cause them stress in a process she calls the work. Byron Katie talked with Suzanne Kreider. The work is a way to identify and question the thoughts that cause all the suffering in the world. Everyone's suffering, and anyone can do it if they're open to it. So let's say, for example, I believed he doesn't care about me. The first question is, is it true? So I'm beginning to question the thought he doesn't care about me. The second question, can I absolutely know that it's true? He doesn't care about me. And then notice how the mind begins to flood me with proof and images, you know, to uh, convince me that it's true. And just to notice and wait and allow another answer to surface. And then that third question, how do you react when you believe that thought? And the fourth question, who would you be without that thought? And then I invite people to turn it around to the opposite. He doesn't care about me. The opposite would be, I don't care about me. And that's a mind blower. You know, it's like, how can, you know, how can I expect people to care about me if I don't even care about me? And then I find the ways that I don't care about me, and it wakes me up to them. 
and I'm shocked. And then another opposite or turnaround would be, I don't care about him. And I begin to identify where that's true. And then immediately I'm awake to it and my behavior changes and it's nothing I have to do. So my behavior with that person and everyone, it radically shifts because we're working with original cause and mind is original cause. Mind is cause. Byron Katie's husband and co-author Stephen Mitchell reading an excerpt from the book A Thousand Names for Joy at the Santa Fe Public Event in February 2007. Sadness is always a sign that you're believing a stressful thought that isn't true for you. It's a constriction, and it feels bad. Conventional wisdom says differently, but the truth is that sadness isn't rational, it isn't a natural response, and it can't ever help you. It just indicates the loss of reality, the loss of the awareness of love. Sadness is the war with what is. It's a tantrum. When the mind is clear, there isn't any sadness. There can't be. Let's pick a core belief that we could do the work on a little bit. What's a core belief that you hear over and over again that our listeners could relate to? I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough because we hear it over and over and over. And also there's, I'm too fat, I don't have enough money, no one cares about me, I'll never find a partner. Let's do that one. I'm not good enough. Okay, so is that true? Not in all cases. So you're not good enough. Can you absolutely know that it's true, that you're not good enough in any case? Oh, I guess I don't know. Because good enough is... It's just relative, isn't it? Yes. Okay. It is. So the third question, how do you react when you believe the thought you're not good enough? I feel embarrassed. I feel embarrassed and ashamed and like I just have to do more to prove something to somebody. Yes. So you're not good enough. Who would you be without that thought? I'd probably be a more successful, engaged human being. Because there wouldn't be any barriers. Yeah, it's very powerful. I love to invite people to look at their lives just the way they've lived it. You know, no, no trick question here. You see, with the thought, stress, and without the thought, unlimited, really. So I'm not good enough. Can you find an opposite? I am good enough. Okay, now examples of where you're good enough, because it's not enough for mine just to say I'm not I, I am good enough. Mind has to know. It has to be awake to reality. So, you know, it shocks people when they find, you know, areas where they are good enough, when their, their self-esteem is so low, they've never considered it. Because that thought is so powerful, they can't consider it. Where is it that you are good enough? I'm good enough at my work, my friendships, with my family. And some of us have to start with, I brushed my teeth this morning. You know, for some people, that's huge. I got out of bed. I made the phone call. I answered the email. It's like we're living in a tomb, some of us, and we actually can resurrect. It's the truth that sets us free. Byron Katie, author of Loving What Is and A Thousand Names for Joy. Religious disputes have led to much conflict throughout history. Can a future of cooperation between disparate religions even be imagined? 
Ibu Patel, founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps in Chicago, thinks so. Patel sees the path to religious tolerance via what he calls religious pluralism. He talked with Suzanne Kreider. There are wonderful stories and wonderful scripture in all the religious traditions about the importance of of doing more than tolerating somebody from a different background, uh, actually building a relationship with them, actually serving them, actually cooperating with them to serve others. So in the Holy Quran, one of my favorite lines comes from Surah 49, that God made us different nations and tribes that we may come to know one another. David Little's a scholar at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and he outlines three possible levels of looking at tolerance. We can be indifferent, we can endure, or we can learn. And in your work at the Interfaith Youth Corps, you really promote that third level of tolerance. You promote learning something from different beliefs. But wouldn't indifference be good enough? Wouldn't it just be great if we didn't kill each other? At the Interfaith Youth Corps, we don't use the term tolerance. We use the term pluralism. And I think pluralism is both more important and less controversial than how David Little describes tolerance, and I'll tell you why. Because pluralism is a pragmatic situation on earth. It does not describe how we view the other person's theology. It describes the type of sociology we want to build together. It doesn't describe whether we think the other person's version of heaven or salvation or is correct. It describes how we want to build a city or a campus or a community with one another. At the Interfaith Youth Corps, we talk of pluralism in the terms of how people from different backgrounds can live together in ways characterized by understanding and cooperation. So when I sit with a Hindu or a Buddhist, I might have dramatic disagreements with his or her theology. In fact, I might have dramatic disagreements with the way that a lot of Muslims interpret their tradition. But my question isn't, do I agree with your theology? My question is, can we live in some sort of mutual trust and loyalty together, number one, as citizens? And number two, are there actually ways that we can find common ground within the social action dimensions of our tradition so that we can actually serve others together? And you might have a very different idea of salvation than me. But that doesn't mean that we can't try to, to reduce homelessness in our city together. And, and I think that that's the future. The future isn't arguments over theology or arguments over salvation. The future is common action towards the common good. Ibu, in your book, Acts of Faith, you talk a lot about the faith line. What is that? The term the faith line comes uh, from W.E.B. Du Bois's great insight 100 years ago that the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color line. And we are shamefully far from fully solving the challenge of racial equality and racial harmony. But one look at the news reports of the past 20 years, and you see clearly that that religion seems to be uh, the motivating factor for much of our violence and tension today, from Northern Ireland to South Asia, and the Middle East to Middle America. But the interesting thing about the way we see the faith line here at the Interfaith Youth Corps is that it does not divide Christians and Muslims or Hindus and Jews. The faith line divides religious totalitarians from religious pluralists. And I described to you a little bit earlier what a religious pluralist was. It's somebody who is actively working together to cultivate understanding and cooperation between people from different backgrounds. Let me say a little bit about what a religious totalitarian is. 
a religious totalitarian is somebody who believes that their way of being, believing, and belonging is the only legitimate way on earth and seeks to suffocate all others. How do we build bridges to totalitarians? Is that possible? Well, I actually think that there are very, very very few people on earth who are actually totalitarians. And what we need to do is marginalize those people. I think that the mistake that a lot of progressive people make and a lot of people involved in the interfaith movement make is they think that all people who are evangelical or who are conservative or who are traditionalist in their, in their religious orientation are, uh, are their enemies. And that's simply not true. The vast majority of evangelicals in America um, are, are on our side. They incline towards pluralism. We have to stop making them feel bad that their theology might be different than ours. It's perfectly fine if they think that they're the only ones who are going to be saved. It's even fine if they want to convert you or me. What most of them are ultimately also about is how can we come together to serve others together. Is it fine, though, that people want to convert us? Because isn't there a continuum, really, from pluralism to totalitarianism? Talk about the impetus behind religious conversion, psychologically or sociologically. Well, several of our great religious traditions, essentially Islam and Christianity, and in some versions, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, are evangelical traditions, which means that most of the believers who are part of those traditions believe that part of their call is to convert others. My conviction is that the the call to convert others is, is a perfectly legitimate call, and it's a call that is frankly protected by free speech. The problem is when certain religious believers think that the only way that they can ever relate to people of other traditions is to seek to convert them. So here at the Interfaith Youth Corps, on a staff of about 17 people, uh, we have a handful of evangelical Christians, and we have a handful of pretty traditional Muslims. And they might, in fact, be praying for the other person's soul in their various mosques or churches. But when they come to work together, they're all putting their shoulders to the wheel of building interfaith cooperation. And I think that that's, that's that's a exceptional world to work for, a world where people have different ideas of heaven but work well on earth together. Dr. Ibu Patel is author of Acts of Faith, the story of an American Muslim, the struggle for the soul of a generation. His Interfaith Youth Corps, headquartered in Chicago, helps bring young people of disparate religious backgrounds together to do community service projects. If you'd lost a loved one in the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, how would you have responded? Some victim family members have channeled their grief into work for peace by joining September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. The group's members speak out against violent solutions to conflict. Some even oppose the death penalty for Zacharias Musawi, the man convicted as a 9-11 conspirator. In a moment, we hear from Terry K. Rockefeller, whose sister Laura was lost in the World Trade Center collapse that day. First, though, Anne Mulderry, whose son Stephen was trapped in a conference room in one of the towers and died that day as well. I don't even think anger's the problem. I mean, I would call rage the problem for me. I fear my own rage, and I think it's legitimate to be afraid of the rage that can be unleashed when terrible injustice is done. So you do work so that terrible injustice won't create rage. As far as enemies and who we view as the cause of our troubles, 
I'll tell this little story because it was one of the first instances of my being brave enough to speak my mind after my son's death. And I spoke my mind to a truly treasured person who came to me and said, what they have done to your son is so terrible, and I know they are in hell. And I loved this person who said those words to me, and I knew it was an attempt to comfort me. It was a desire to comfort me. And I said to him, all I can say is that my darling son Stephen has gone to another world in the company of the people who did this. And all I can see is him saying to them, as I heard him say to his brothers on the basketball court, what'd you do that for when somebody had done something they shouldn't have done? I don't know how to explain my faith that that is the case, but I do believe that we all share in the guilt of the violent solutions that are affected in our lifetime. And I believe we can all share in the healing and peace if we will struggle, as Martin Luther King says, and that's the name of our group, wars are poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. If you think you can make a peaceful tomorrow with a war, you're a foolish person. So, Anne, it was uh, back in March of 2002 that you learned of the group September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. I, I read somewhere that you saw a press release that was sent to you by email. Do you recall the words that spoke really loud and clear to you? Well, it was the name of the group that immediately attracted me. It was a news release, and it was uh, a perhaps a 250-word news release. It was a lengthy statement of the group's commitments. And as I read through the news release, and as they reiterated the arguments that I had formulated in my own mind, I thought I could have written this news release. And do you remember some of those words? Well, it was, you know, pretty much what we've talked about, mm -hmm. that violence begets violence, that war begets war, that there are other ways, that there hadn't been an attempt to solve this with international law. There was a heavy emphasis on the, um, ignoring, the ignoring of international law and the United Nations in the news release, and it was all compelling. Terry, were you a part of the organization at the very beginning? How, how was that founded? The organization started um, when a group of people met on a, on a peace march that went from Washington, D.C., from the Pentagon to the World Trade Center, uh, stopping along the way and speaking to communities that in, in between Washington and New York about the potential for not responding with violence, but, but thinking about legal and nonviolent alternatives to, to addressing uh, this tragedy. And the folks who got together on that march, I was not on that march, um, who were family members, got together at the end of the march in New York and actually wrote down the seven points that became the action plan for Peaceful Tomorrows. Then four of those people, along with a program called Global Exchange, went to Afghanistan to meet with the civilian population and to talk to them about how they had not wanted innocent civilians to pay a price for something that it was not their government that had done this. It was terrorists who were living in their midst. And so I found out about these people who had gone to Afghanistan uh, on the Internet and not knowing about the march that they had been on together um, 
when I found out, I thought, these are the kind of human beings who can support me. I thought about, um, I'd had a, a really heartbreaking experience, not unlike Anne's, I think, when, when someone just said the wrong thing to me. I remember walking across the driveway to tell my neighbors that my sister had been murdered. And this wonderful old man who's, who's, who'd been kind to my children uh, turned to me and he said, well, don't you worry. We're going to get those bastards. And I didn't know. I just, my mouth dropped open and I shook my head and I just had to walk away from him. I didn't know how to deal with someone who wanted me to be taking my pain and my sorrow and turning it to violence. So when I found out about these four people who had gone to Afghanistan, I just, I, I made any, every effort to find out who they were and, uh, you know, quickly got, got linked up with them. One of the amazing things that happened is when I joined September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, the first person I met was Colleen Kelly. And um, I was telling her about Laura, and I was telling her how surprising it was that that Laura had been in the World Trade Center because she didn't work there. And Colleen looked at me and said, well, her brother had been at a conference on the 106th floor of the World Trade Center, and he wasn't normally there either. And then I just said, well, that's the conference my sister was working at. And it was, um, it was, there was just an amazing experience to realize that I had been brought together with this member of September 11th Families, brought together with this member of Peaceful Tomorrows, and to know that her brother and my sister had died together, um, and that that had brought us together, and that out of that, ways to make peace. That's Terry K. Rockefeller and earlier Ann Mulderry, two members of September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows victim family members advocating for peace and nonviolence as their way to memorialize their loved ones lost on 9-11-2001. The full programs from which these excerpts came can be heard at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also order CDs, sign up for a newsletter or podcast, and make a tax-deductible contribution to help keep talk of peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution on the radio and on the web. Support from listeners like you is crucial to the survival of this special series. More details at peacetalksradio.com. Peace Talks Radio is produced by Good Radio Shows Incorporated, a nonprofit media organization creating programs meant to inform, inspire, and improve the human condition. We receive support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peace Tales CD Project at peacetales.org, and from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ali Adelman. For Suzanne Kreider and Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to Peace Talks Radio.